Section 15 of Martin Pippin in the Apple Orchard by Eleanor Farshan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Eastman. Open Winkins. There were once, dear maidens, five lords in the east of Sussex, who owned between them a single burg, for they were brothers. Their names were Lionel and Hugh and Harriet and Ambrose and Hob. Lionel was ten years of age, and Hob was twenty-one, there being exactly three years, all but a month, between the birthdays of the brothers. And Lionel had a merry spirit, and Hugh great courage and daring. And Harriet had beauty past any man's share, and Ambrose had a wise mind. But Hob had nothing at all for the world's praise, for he only had a loving heart, which he spent upon his brothers and his garden. And since love begets love, they all loved him dearly, and leaned heavily on his affection, though neither they nor any man looked up to him because he was a lord. Although he was the eldest, and in his quiet way administered the affairs of the burg, and of the people of Alfriston under the burg, it was Ambrose who was always thinking of new schemes for improvement, and Harriet who undertook the festivities. As for the younger boys, they kept the old place alive with their youth and spirits, and it was evident that later on Hugh would win honour to the burg in battle and adventure, and Lionel would draw the world thither with his charm. But Hob, to whom they all brought their shapeless dreams white-hot, since sympathy helps us to create bodies for the things which begin their existence as souls, Hob differed from the four others, not only in his name, but in his plain appearance and simple tastes and all these things, as well as his tender heart, he got from his mother, who was the only daughter of a gardener in Alfriston. The gardener, to whom she was the very apple of his eye, had kept her privately in a place on a hill, fearing lest in her youth and inexperience she should fall to the lot of some man not worthy of her. For he knew, or believed, that a young girl of her sweetness and tenderness and devotedness of disposition would by her sweetness attract a lover too early, and by her tenderness respond to him too readily, and by her devotedness follow him too blindly, before she had time to know herself for man. And he also knew, or believed, that first love is as often a will-o'-the-wisp as the star for which all young things take it. Five days in the week he tended the gardens of Alfriston, the sixth he gave to the lord of the burg that lay among the hills, and the seventh he kept for his daughter, on the hill a few miles distant, which was afterwards known as Hobbs Hoth. She, on her part, spent her week in endeavouring to grow a perfect rose of a certain golden species, and her heart was given wholly to her father and her flower. And he watched her efforts with interest and advice, and for the first she thanked him, but of the second took no heed. For, said she, this is my garden, father, and my rose, and I will grow it in my own way or not at all. Have you not had a lifetime of gardens and roses which you have brought to perfection? And would you let any man take your own upon his shoulders, even your own mistakes, and shoulder at last the praise after the blame? Then Hob, her father, laughed at her indulgently, and said, Nay, not any man. Yet once I led a woman, and without her aid, 
I would never have brought my rarest and dearest flower to perfection. So if I should let a woman help me, why not you a man? Was the woman your mother? said she. And her father was silent. Then a day came when he trudged up and down the hills from Alfriston, and standing at the gate of her garden, saw his child in the arms of a stranger. And her face, as it lay against his heart, seemed to her father also to be the face of a stranger, and not of his child. He recognized in the stranger the lord of the burg, and he saw that what he had feared had come to pass, and that his daughter's heart would be no more divided between her father and her flower, for it was given whole to the lover who had first assailed it. Hob came into the garden, and they looked up as the gate clicked, and their faces grew as red as though one had caught the reflection from the other. But both looked straight into his eyes. And his daughter, pointing to her bush, said, Father, my rose is grown at last. And he saw that the bush was crowned with a glorious golden bloom, perfect in every detail. Then it was the turn of the lord of the burg, and he said, Sir, I ask leave to rob your garden of its rose. Do robbers ask leave? said Hob. And he shook his head, adding, Nay, when the thief and the theft are in collusion, what say is left to the owner of the treasure? Yet I do not like this. Sir, have you considered that she is a gardener's child? Daughter, have you considered that he is a lord? And neither of them had considered these questions, and they did not propose to do so. Then Hob shook his head again, and said, I will not waste words. I know when a plant can drink no more water. And though you pretend to ask my leave, I know that you are prepared to dispense with it. But by way of consent I will say this. Whatever you may call your other sons, you shall call your first Hob, to remind you to-morrow of what you will not consider to-day. For my daughter, when she is a lord's wife, will nonetheless still be a gardener's daughter, and your children will be grafted of two stocks. And if this seems to you a hard condition, then kiss and bid farewell. And they both laughed with joy at the lightness of the condition, but the gardener did not laugh. And so the lord of the burg married the gardener's daughter, and they called their first son Hob. He was born on the first of August, and thirty-five months later Ambrose was born on the first of July, and in due course Harriet in June, and Hugh in May, and Lionel in April. And the Lord, loving his sons equally, made them equal possessors of the burg when in time it should pass out of his hands, which, since men are mortal, presently came to pass, and there were five lords instead of one. It happened on a roaring night of March, when the wind was blustering over the barren ocean of the East Downs, and Lionel was still a boy of ten, but soon to be eleven, that the five brothers sat clustered about the great hearth in the hall, roasting apples and talking of this and that. But their talk was fitful, and had long pauses in which they listened to the gusty night, which had so much more to say than they. And after one of the silences, Lionel shuddered slightly, and drawing his little stool close to Hob, he said, It sounds like witches. Hob put his big hand round the child's head and face, 
and Lionel pressed his cheek against his brother's knee. "'Or lions,' said Hugh, jumping up and running to the window, where he flattened his nose to stare into the night. "'I wish it were lions coming over the downs.' "'What would you do with them?' said Hob, smiling broadly. "'Fight them,' said Hugh, "'and chain them up. I should like to have lions instead of dogs, a red lion and a white one.' I never heard tell of lions of those colors, said Hob, but perhaps Ambrose has with all his reading. Not I, said Ambrose, but I haven't read half the books yet. The wind still knows more than I, and it may be that he knows where red and white lions are to be found, for he knows everything. And has seen everything, murmured Harriet, watching a lovely flame of blue and green that flickered among the red and gold on the hearth and has been everywhere, muttered Hugh. If I could find and catch him, I'd ask him for a red and a white lion. I'd rather have peacocks, said Harriet, his eyes on the fire. What would you choose, Ambrose? asked Hob. Nothing, said he, but it's the hardest of all things to have, and I doubt if I'd get it. But what business have we to be choosing presents? That is Lionel's right before ours, for isn't his birthday next month? What will you ask of the wind for your birthday, Law? Then Lionel, who was getting very drowsy, smiled a sleepy smile, and said, I'd like a farm of my own in the Downs, a very little farm, with pink pigs and black cocks, and white donkeys and chestnut horses no bigger than grasshoppers and mice, and a very little well, as big as my mug, to draw up my water from and a little green paddock the size of my pocket-handkerchief, and another of yellow corn, and another of crimson trefoil. And I would have a blue farm-wagon no larger than Hob's shoe, and a haystack half as big as a seed-cake, and a duck-pond that I could cover with my platter. And I'd live there and play with it all day long, if only I knew where the wind lives, and could ask him how to get it. "'Don't start till to-morrow,' jested Ambrose, Tonight you're too sleepy to find the way. Then he turned to his book, and Hugh was still at the window, and Harriet gazing into the fire. And as he felt the child's head droop in his hand, Hob picked him up in his arms and carried him to bed. And he alone of all those brothers had made no choice, nor had they thought to ask him, so accustomed were they, to see him jog along without the desires that lead men to their goals, such as Ambrose's thirst for knowledge, and Harriet's passion for beauty, and Hugh's lust for adventure, and Lionel's pursuit of delight. And yet, unknown to them all, he had a heartfelt wish, which among other things he had inherited from his mother. For on a height west of the burg he had made a garden, where, like her, he labored to produce a perfect golden rose. But so far luck was against him, though his height, which was therefore spoken of as the gardener's hill, bloomed with the loveliest flowers of all sorts imaginable. But year by year his rose was attacked by a special pest, the nature of which he had not succeeded in discovering. Yet his patience was inexhaustible, and his brothers, who sometimes came to his garden when they needed a listener for their achieved or unachieved ambitions, never suspected that he, too, had an ambition he had not realized, for they saw only a lovely garden of his creating, 
where wisdom, beauty, adventure, and delight were made equally welcome by the gardener. Now, on the March day following the night of the brothers' windy talk, but suddenly Marden, with a nimble movement, stood upright on his bow, and grasping that to which the swing was attached, shook it with such frenzy that a tempest seemed to pass through the tree, and the girl shrieked and clung to the trunk, and leaves and apples flew in all directions. And Jessica, between clutching at her ropes and letting go to ward off the cannonade of fruit, gasped in a tumult of laughter and indignation. Jessica "'Have you gone mad, Master Pippin? Have you gone mad?' Martin, "'Mad, Mistress Jessica, stark staring mad. March hares are pet rabbits to me.' Jessica, "'Sit down this instant. Do you hear? This instant. That's better. What fun it was. Ha! You thought you could shake me off, but you didn't. Are you still mad?' Martin, Melancholy mad, since you will not let me rave. Jessica, you are the less dangerous, but I hate you to be melancholy. Marden, it is no one's fault but yours. How can I be jolly when my story upsets you? Jessica, how do you know it upsets me? Marden, you put out your tongue at me. Jessica, did I? Martin, yes, without reason. So what could I do but whistle mine to the winds? Jessica, you were too hasty, for I had my reason. Martin, if it was a good one, I'll whistle mine back again. Jessica, it was this, that no man in a love-tale should be wiser or braver or more beautiful or more happy than the hero, or how can he be the hero? Yet I am sure Hob is the hero and none of the others, because he is the only one old enough to be married. Martin, Ambrose is nineteen and will very soon be twenty. Jessica, what's nineteen or even twenty in a man? Fie! A man's not a man till he comes of age, and the hero's not Ambrose for all his wisdom, though wisdom becomes a hero, nor Harriet for all his beauty though a hero should be beautiful. Nor Hugh, who will one day be brave enough for any hero, though now he's but a boy. Nor the happy Lionel, who is only a child. Yet I love a gay hero. It's none of these, full though they be of the qualities of heroes. And here is your hob, with nothing to show but a fondness for roses. Martin, you deserve to be stood in a corner for that nothing, Mistress Jessica. Your reason was such a bad one that I see I must return to sense, if only to teach you a little of it. Did I not say Hob had a loving heart? Jessica But he was plain and simple and patient and contented. Are these things for a hero? Martin Mistress Jessica, I will ask you a riddle. What is it? Oh, but first, I take it you love apple trees? Jessica, who doesn't? Martin, what is it, then, you love in an apple tree? Is it the dancing of the leaves in the wind? Is it the boldness of the boughs, or perhaps the loveliness of the flower in spring? Or, again, the fruit that ripens of the flower amongst the leaves on the boughs? 
What is it you love in an apple tree? Jessica. All riddles are traps. I must consider before I answer. Martin. You shall consider until the conclusion of my story, and not till you are satisfied that many things can be contained in one will I require your solution. And as for traps, it is always the solver of riddles who lays his own trap, by looking all round the question and never straight at it. Put on your thinking cap, I beg, while I go on babbling. On the March day following the brothers' talk, continued Martin, Lionel was missing. It was some time before his absence was noticed, for Hob was in his distant garden, and Ambrose among his books, and Harriet had ridden north to the market-town to buy stuff for a jerkin, and Hugh had run south to the sea to watch the ships. So Lionel was left to his own devices, and what they were none tried to guess till evening, when the brothers met again, and he was not there. Then there was hue and cry among the hills, but to no purpose. The child had vanished like a cloud, and the month wore by, and their hearts grew heavier day by day. It was in the last week of March that Hugh one morning came red-eyed to his brothers, and said, I am going away, and I will not come back until I have found Lionel, for I can't rest. None of us can do that, said Ambrose, and we have searched and sent messengers everywhere. You are too young to go alone. I am nearly fourteen, said Hugh, and stronger than Harriet, and even than you, Ambrose, and I can take care of myself, and Lionel too. There are more ways than one to seek, and I'll go my way while you go yours, but I will find him or die." And he looked with defiance at Ambrose, and then turned to Hob, and said doggedly, "'I'm going, Hob.' Hob, who himself sought the hills unwearyingly day after day, and then sat up three parts of the night attending to the duties of the burg, said, "'Go, and God bless you.' and Hugh's mouth grew less set, and he kissed his brothers, and put his knife in his belt, and took food in his wallet, and walked out of the burg. He followed the grass track to the north, and had walked less than half an hour, when the wind took his cap, and blew it into the middle of a pond, where it lay soddening out of reach. So he took off his shoes and walked into the pond to fetch it out, stirring up the yellow mud in thick soft clouds. But as he stooped to grab his cap, something else stirred the mud in the middle, and a body heaved itself sluggishly into view. At first Hugh thought it must be the body of a sheep that had tumbled into the water, but to his amazement the sulky head of an old man appeared. He was barely distinguishable from the mud out of which he had risen. "'Drat the boys!' said the muddy man. "'Will they never be done with disturbing the newts and me? Drat em, I say!' "'Who are you?' demanded Hugh, staring with all his might. "'Jerry, I am, and this is my pond. Why can't you leave me in peace?' "'The wind took my cap,' said Hugh. "'Findings keepings,' said the muddy man, taking the cap himself. "'And windfalls on this water is mine. So I'll keep your cap, and it's the second wind's brought me this march.' and if you're in want of another, you'd best go to where Wind lives and ask him for it like the other one. But he said he'd ask for a toy farm instead. A toy farm? shouted Hugh. 
Go away and don't deafen a body, said Jerry, and prepared to sink again. But Hugh caught him by the hair and said fiercely, Keep my cap if you like, but I won't let you go until you tell me where my brother went. Your brother, was it? growled the muddy man. He went to high and over, dancing like a sunbeam. What's high and over? Where wind lives. Where's that? Find out, mumbled the muddy man. And he wriggled himself out of Hugh's clutch and buried himself like a monstrous newt in the mud. And though Hugh groped and fumbled shoulder-deep, he could not feel a trace of him. But, said he, there is at least a name to go on. And he got out of the pond, and went in search of high and over. And his brothers waited in vain for his return. And the heaviness of four hearts was now divided between three, and doubled because of another brother lost. But on the first of April, which was Lionel's birthday, Lionel came back. Or rather, Hob found him in a valley north of his garden hill, when he was wandering on one of his forlorn searches. And when he found him, Hob could not believe his eyes, for the child was sitting in the middle of the prettiest plaything in the world. It was a tiny farm, covering perhaps a quarter of an acre, with minute barns and yards and stables and pygmy livestock in the little pastures, and hand-high crops in the little meadows, and smoke came from the tiny chimney of the farmhouse, and Lionel was drawing water from a well in a bucket the size of a thimble. And all the colors were so bright and painted that the little farmstead seemed to have been conceived of the gayest mind on earth. But through his amazement, Hob had no thought except for the child, and he ran calling him by his name. But Lionel never looked up. And then Hob lifted him in his arms and embraced him closely. But the child did not respond. Then Hob looked at him anxiously, and was so shocked that he forgot the strange, blithe little farm entirely. For Lionel was as wan and wasted as though he had been through a fever, and his rosy face was white, and his merry eyes were melancholy. And suddenly, as Hob clasped him, he flung his arms round his big brother's neck, and buried his face in his bosom, and wept bitterly. Then Hob tried to soothe and comfort him, asking him little questions in a coaxing voice. Where has the child been? Why did he run away and leave us? Where did he get this pretty, wonderful toy? Is he hurt or hungry? Does he remember it is his birthday? There will be presents for him at the Burg, and a cake for tea. Did Hugh bring him home? Has he seen Hugh? Lol, lol, where is Hugh? But Lionel answered none of these questions. He only sobbed and sobbed, and suddenly slipped out of Hob's arms, and began to play once more with his farm, while the tears ran down his thin cheeks. Presently he let Hob take him home, and there Harriet and Ambrose rejoiced and sorrowed over him, for he would scarcely speak or eat, and only shook his head at their questions. At Hugh's name his tears flowed twice as fast, but he would tell them nothing of him. Very soon Hob carried him to bed, and in undressing him noticed that he had no shirt. This, too, Lionel would not explain, and Hob ceased troubling him with talk, 
and knelt and prayed by him, and laid him down to sleep, hoping that in the morning he would be better. But morning brought no change. Lionel from that day was given up to grief. Each morning he went dejectedly to play with his marvellous toy in the valley, but how he came by it he would not say. Towards the end of April Harriet came to Hob and Ambrose and said, I cannot bear this. Lionel is home, and we are none the better for it, and Hugh is gone, and we are all the worse. Hugh is capable of looking after himself, yet perhaps danger has befallen him. And even if not, he will roam the country fruitlessly for months, and it may be years, since Lionel is restored, and he does not know it. The bird can spare me better than it can you, and I will ride abroad and see if I can find him, and return in seven days, whether or no. So they embraced him, and he departed. But at the end of seven days he did not appear, and Ambrose and Hob were dismayed at his vanishing like the others, and so heavy a gloom descended on the berg that each could scarcely have endured it without the other. And every day they went forth in search of Hugh and Harriet, or traces of them, but found none. Then it happened that on the first of May, which was Hugh's birthday, Hob, wandering further north than usual, to the brow of the great ridge east of the Ouse, heard a wild roaring and bellowing on the downs. Or rather, it was two separate roarings, as you may sometimes hear two separate storms thundering at once over two ranges of hills. And in astonishment he went first to Beddingham, and there, bound by an iron chain to a stake beside a pond, he found a mighty lion, as white as a young lamb. But he had not a lamb's meekness, for he ramped and raved in a great circle around the stake, and his open throat set in his shaggy mane looked like the red sun seen upon white mist. Hob rubbed his eyes and turned towards Ilford, where the second roaring sought to outdo the first. And there, beside another pond, he found another stake and chain, and a lion exactly similar, except that he was as red as a rose. But he had not a rose's sweetness, for he snarled and leaped with fury at the end of his chain, and his flashing teeth under his red muzzle looked like the blossom of the scarlet runner. And then, turning about for an explanation of these wonders, Hob saw what drove them from his mind. The figure of Hugh crouched in a little hollow and shaking like a leaf. Hob ran towards him with a shout, and at the shout Hugh leaped to his feet with the eyes of a hunted hare and looked on all sides as though seeking where to hide. But Hob was soon beside him, with his arm round the boy's shoulder and gazing earnestly into his face. "'Why, lad,' said he, "'do you not know me again?' Hugh stole a glance at him and suddenly smiled and nodded and tried to answer but could not for the chattering of his teeth, and he clung hard to his brother's side and shuddered from head to foot. "'Are you ill, Hugh?' Hob asked him, bewildered at the boy's unlikeness to himself. "'No, Hob,' said Hugh, "'but need we stay here now?' "'Why, no,' said Hob gently. "'We will go when you like. Where do these beasts come from?' Hugh set his lips and began to move away. Hob went beside him and said, "'Lionel is home, but Harriet is lost, 
Have you seen Harriet?' Hugh hesitated, and then stammered, "'No, I have not seen him.' And Hob knew that he had lied, Hugh who had always been as fearless of the truth as of anything else. So after that he asked no more, fearing to get another lie for an answer. And he led Hugh home, supporting him with his arm, for he was full of fits and starts and shiverings. If a lump of chalk rolled under his shoe, he blanched and cried, "'What's that?' and once when a field-mouse ran across the path he swooned. Then Hob, opening his tunic at the neck, saw that nothing was between it and his body, for he, like Lionel, was without his shirt. They got back to the burg, and Hob found Ambrose and told him how it was. And Ambrose came to Hugh and talked with him, and turned away with knitted brows, for here was a puzzle not dealt with in his books. And May went by in miserable fashion, with Lionel spending the days in playing mournfully beside his farm, and Hugh in cowering abjectly between his lions. And sometimes Ambrose and Hob, after searching for Harriet or news of him, or spending their spirits in endeavouring to harden their two brothers, or to elicit from them something that should give them the key to the mystery, would meet in Hob's hill-garden, where seemed to be the only peace and loveliness left upon earth and Hob would weed and tend his neglected flowers, and they bloomed for him as though they knew he loved them, as indeed they did. Only his golden rose-tree would not flourish, but this small sorrow was unguessed by Ambrose. One evening, as they sat in the garden in the last week of May, Ambrose said to his brother, "'I have been thinking, Hob, that at all costs Harriet must be found, and not for his own sake only. He is younger than we, and nearer in spirit to the boys, and he may be able to help them as we cannot. For if this goes on, he will die of his fears, and Lionel of his melancholy. You must stay and administer our affairs as usual, and look after the boys, and I will go further afield in search of Harriet. Hob was silent for a moment, and then he sighed and said, no good has come of these seekings. Our lads returned of themselves, as Harriet may, and their return was worse than anything we feared of their absence, as if he come back, I pray Harriet's will not be. And for you, Ambrose. But then he paused, not saying what was in his mind. And Ambrose said, Do not be afraid for me. These boys are young, and I am older than my years and though I cannot face danger with a stouter heart than our brothers, I can perhaps see into it a little further than they, and foresight is sometimes a still better tool than courage. Then he took Cobb's hand in his, and they gripped with the grip of men who love each other, and Ambrose went out of the garden, and Hob was left alone, for Hugh and Lionel were companions to none but themselves. But on the first of June, Hob, coming to the gate of his garden, saw with surprise a peacock strutting on the hill-brow, his fan spread in the sun, a lustre of green and blue and gold, and behind him was another, and further south three more. So Hob went out to look at them, and found not five but fifty peacocks sweeping the downs with their heavy trains, or opening and shutting them like gigantic magical flowers. 
following the throng of birds, he came shortly to a barn already known to him, but he had never seen it as he saw it now. For the roof was crowded with peacocks, and peacocks strayed in flocks within and without. And sitting in the doorway was Harriet, the sight of whom so overjoyed his brother that Hob forgot the thousand peacocks in the one man. And he made speed to greet him, but within a few yards halted full of doubt. For was this Harriet? He had Harriet's air and attitude, yet the grace was gone from his body. And Harriet's features, surely, but the beauty had melted away like morning dew. And his dress, which had always been orderly and beautiful, was neglected. So that under the half-laced jerkin, Hobbes saw that he was shirtless. Yet after the first moment's shock, he knew this gaunt and ugly youth was Harriet. And Harriet, seeing his coming, hung his head, and made a shamed movement of retreat into the shadow of the barn. But Hob hurried to him, and took him by the shoulders, and beheld him with the eyes of love which always find his object beautiful. Then the flush faded from Harriet's haggard cheeks, and he looked as full at Hob as Hob at him. And as at the steadfast meeting of eyes men see no longer the physical appearance, but for an eternal instance the appearance of the soul, these brothers knew that they were to each other what they had always been. And Harriet saw that Hob was full of questions, and he laid his hand over Hob's mouth and said, Hob, do not ask me anything, for I can tell you nothing. Neither of yourself nor of Ambrose, said Hob. Nothing, repeated Harriet. So Hob left his questions unspoken, and as they went home together, told Harriet of Hugh's return, and what had happened to him and Harriet heard it without comment. And in the evening, when Lionel and Hugh returned, they had nothing to say to Harriet, nor he to them. And it seemed to Hob that this was because, between these three, everything was understood. End of Part 1 of Open Winkins.